Chapter 5, Education Unfortunately, our education system is not only failing to teach critical thinking, it is often itself a source of confused rhetoric and emotional venting in place of systematic reasoning. Thomas Sowell Progressive ideologues are desperately seeking new taxes and ways to raise more money for the government in order to prop up overpriced industries rather than asking why these industries are overpriced in the first place. Education was not always unaffordable, but the advent of guaranteed student loans have pushed up the price. If the colleges know the government is guaranteeing the loan, they will adjust the price accordingly, and of course, inflation ensues. But rather than addressing the underlying problem of why college is so expensive, they're just looking for how to pay for it, but keeping the price where it is, and allowing the Department of Education to swindle tens of billions of dollars in profits from student loans. And yet, if you oppose the Department of Education, which was invented in 1979, it's like you're against education. But what did we do before 1979? Were there no schools? Could no one read? Was there no education without the Department of Education? Of course there was education. The Department of Education does not facilitate or produce education. They are a bureaucratic body to profit from the educational industry with a theme. When the government subsidizes higher education, it accomplishes nothing but to make it more expensive. Given that universities not only partner up with, but also invest in defense companies, the government, through the student loan program, has managed to create an ingenious system to launder money through the universities into the war industries. People will oppose the war industries, but not school. So if the war industries can attach themselves to the school profits and money laundering, they will, and they have. Schools, knowing they can count on these guaranteed loans, hike up tuition costs at their own convenience. This has resulted in the inflating cost which in turn makes it increasingly more difficult to go to school without getting a loan. With interest, of course. But shouldn't college be free, like in some other countries? Well, it's never actually free, and if you intend on paying for it through taxes or other means, you still have to address the underlying problem of why it's so expensive. If you don't do that, it's not going to matter whether or not you steal the money from other people or you have people pay for it themselves because it is an overpriced industry. But shouldn't everyone go to college? Shouldn't we make college more affordable? The problem now is practically no one can afford it. Today's students graduate with the equivalent debt of a large mortgage, but without the benefit of a house to go with it. Schools waste a lot of money on things they claim support education. They spend money on campus beautification projects. They dump it into landscaping or state-of-the-art facilities with extracurricular activities. Colleges have become businesses driven by profit. There is hardly a college in the United States that doesn't play the parking permit gambit, wherein it sells more parking passes than are available parking spaces. Every morning it becomes a game of musical chairs, where he who arrives last is forced to park illegally in order to avoid being late for class or even missing it entirely. This system of overselling may profit the school, but it means that on any given day there will be a large number of students stuck paying for parking tickets. There exists a similar scam in the textbook industry, 
where every year a new edition of a textbook is required for a class, even though, in reality, only a line or two has been changed from the previous one. This artificially accelerated flood of revisions forces each year's crop of new students to pay full price for new editions, often costing hundreds of dollars per book, while preventing former students from recouping some of their investment in the used book market. If the primary concern of universities is for education and not profit, then why do their faculty members allow this to be done to their students? Unfortunately, this situation has become the rule, not the exception. Only a few schools remain where students have organized themselves, ergo in online forums, as a way to facilitate the continued resale of old books when feasible, and also to circumvent this planned obsolescence. Such scams pale, however, when compared to the worst of the travesties perpetuated on the students today. Many universities have begun withholding students' transcripts in order to punish them for outstanding student loan payments. Professor Andrew Ross of the website Occupy Student Debt had this to say of the practice. It's worse than indentured servitude. With indentured servitude, you had to pay in order to work, but then at least you got to work. When universities withhold these transcripts, students have been endangered by loans are being denied even the ability to work or finish their education so that they can repay their indenture. What justification does a school have to withhold their students' transcripts when the school itself has already been paid? The balance on the loan is owed to the lender, be it either a private bank or the government, not the school. The LA Times explained the reasoning behind this policy when they reported, It is no accident that colleges are using the withholdings of official transcripts to punish students behind in their loan payments. It turns out the federal government encourages the practice. Schools are not required by law to withhold transcripts, but a spokesman at the Department of Education confirmed that the department encourages them to use this draconian tactic, saying that the policy has resulted in numerous loan repayments. It is a strange position for colleges to take, however, since the schools themselves are not owed any money. Student loan funds come from private banks or the federal government. For federal Perkins loans, schools get a pool of federal money to apply to students' financial aid. If the students don't pay, that pool gets smaller. But the creditor is still the government, not the college. And in the case of the so-called Stanford loans, schools are not on the hook in any way. They are simply acting as collection agencies and, in fact, may get paid for their efforts at collection. The fewer students pay back their loans, or the more slowly they pay, the smaller the available pool of new loan money becomes for the universities to use for their new or currently enrolled students. By fixing the pool of available loan money for each school, the government creates an incentive for the school to get involved in the payment collection process. Offsetting the burden of debt collection onto the universities thus creates a moral hazard whereby universities are encouraged to act ruthlessly against their graduates to secure future funding through the loan system. Most college graduates now finish school with a massive debt they will likely spend decades repaying. Interest kills, and in some of these debts, the students have been given interest payments that exceed the principal of the initial loan. The result is a new socioeconomic class of educated debt slaves. While economics might seem boring, it probably has more real-world applications for the majority of the population than most of the curriculum taught in public schools nowadays. Perhaps if more of today's college students had been taught some basic economics in high school, they might not have been so eager to burden themselves with exuberant college loans 
that will take them the majority of their adult lives to pay back. When it comes to lower education, our public school system is just as plagued by a similar for-profit industry entrenched in government. We all want to help people, especially the poor, to do better in school. Oh, here's an idea. We can just give the schools more money, right? However, giving money to a school is not as straightforward as distributing welfare to the poor. It does not help those whose problems in school stem from problems at home, which themselves often come from financial stress on the families. Throwing money at schools is an attempt at a solution that has already been repeated time and time again. Unfortunately, it simply doesn't work. Schools, like any government body, will quickly find ways to tie up their budget increases in administrative costs, pointless landscaping projects, or massive kickback scams involving the purchase of textbooks, etc. According to 2006 data from the U.S. Department of Education, only 35% of American high school seniors are proficient in reading and 23% in math. On the global stage, America ranks last in educational effectiveness among the largest industrialized countries, despite the highest spending per student ratio in the world. Teacher unions are bitterly opposed to a voucher system, not to mention the creation of charter schools. Public schools enjoy an enrollment system based on zip codes. Most people do not have a choice where their children can go to school unless they have enough money to send them to a private school. As a result, the public schools are scared to death of competition. A voucher system essentially creates a scholarship for people who cannot afford private school. If you simply disperse money for schooling directly to families, there would be no guarantee that it would actually go toward the student's education. Dispersed as a voucher, however, guarantees that 100% of the value is spent on sending the students to the school of his or her choice. The hope is that the existence of real competition may force public schools into performing better. Due to the traditional tenure system, it is so costly to fire a bad teacher in the public school system that less than one-third of 1% 1 of them are let go, no matter how poor or even criminal their performances are. On a per-student basis, the U.S. outspends every nation in the world on education and yet it is nowhere near the top in proficiency in any subject. Some U.S. schools are spending over $18,000 per student. That's a lot of tax money. But where is it all going? When you look at these classrooms, it is hard to figure out just where the annual sticker price is actually being spent. New Jersey spent $31 billion in a single decade for just 31 school districts. The premise they were working under was that the best way to fix the schools in poor neighborhoods was to just spend more money. There were over 10 schools getting over 300000 a year for each class. Some were over 400000 yet the average teacher's salary was only 55000 and these are people who usually prepare and teach multiple subjects. It doesn't take a mathematician to realize that the majority of the money must have gone to administrative costs, which in fact usually came in at about 90 cents on the dollar. Such administrative costs are excessive to say the least. Bill Baroni, a state senator from New Jersey, which happened to be the state which spends the most on education in the U.S., points out that they have over 400 administrators making more than $100,000 a year, and that in Newark alone. Superintendents are giving themselves severance packages that, when combined with their pensions, come in just shy of a million dollars. The problem is, 
that the average person will support unconditionally any money that claims to be for education. Thus, they have created a cartel capable of robbing the public blind because their association with the very mention of education grants them an air of impunity. Another problem in modern education has been the attack on imagination in schools, which has led to a new form of moral decay in our society. Many people can no longer answer such simple questions as, why aren't we more kind to each other? Or, why do we kill each other? These are questions even a five-year-old child should be able to answer. Yet we now live in a society where such basic exercises as putting oneself in another person's shoes, imagining the consequences of one's actions on the environment, or considering the depletion of overexploited resources has fallen by the wayside. As a result, it should come as no surprise that we wind up living in a self-gratifying, self-centered shell of the now. Imagination is not just some fantastic device to be used for a child's entertainment, complete with purple dragons and storybook princesses. Empathy and sympathy both stem from imagination. The foolish false dichotomy of pitting imagination against rational thought has been poisonous for the humanities. This might explain how we can be smart enough to invent the nuclear bomb and a mind-boggling array of guided missiles and unmanned drones and then be stupid enough to actually employ them. The amount of scientific brain power poured into these projects has been both enormous and impressive. The staggering lack of thought currently put into developing a child's sense of humanity, the same sense which is supposed to guide our judgment in everyday matters like Perhaps there's another option besides incinerating that city with giant fireballs is truly frightening. Richard Feynman, who worked on building the first atomic bombs dropped on Japan, stated that his initial reason for working on the project was out of fear that if we could build it, so could the Germans. That's why we had to finish it first. He went on to say that when the reason changed after Germany had been defeated, he did not go back to address the moral question of whether they should continue building the bomb. The work just simply continued. His defense? I simply didn't think, okay? This was a man of extraordinary genius who was by no means a wicked person. Such is the cognitive dissonance that can be created by war, aided and abetted by the lopsided mental training devoid of moral philosophy which we now teach in our schools. The attack on imagination in schools, where it is treated as if it were some sort of useless evolutionary holdover to be overcome, has proven disastrous. There is nothing frivolous about being imaginative, just as there is nothing heartless about being rational. These are both good and necessary qualities that should carry no stigma, nor be treated as conflicting qualities. Our best science has come from those who were as imaginative as they were technical. We should embrace imagination and not only foster it in our children, but continue to foster it in our adults. Within the current government-run school system, the goal of education seems to be to instill obedience and the ability to retain a random collection of facts long enough to pass a standardized test. Students get depressed over the resulting impractical, time-consuming busywork, which eats away the hours of their youth. But perhaps there is another motivation behind this lobotomization of our imaginations, one which can be best conveyed through the words of the great Ron Swanson. Give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Don't teach a man to fish, and you feed yourself. The current educational model seems to be designed to drown students in mountains of useless, abstract, academic minutiae, hamstringing them with decades of debt, withhold teaching them applicable skills for the workplace, 
and then set them loose into the real world to fend for themselves. That the modern, universally accepted definition of the real world now seems to equate to not in school anymore should tell us just how divorced our modern method of education is from the actual knowledge and skills we need to cope with real life. The final problem worth mentioning is the trend toward making test scores the ultimate measure of education. Doing so means that some places will make teaching the test the goal of the curriculum rather than the actual subject matter. After all, if they were to get lower scores than dictated by the parameters of the test, some folks might just move their kids into a private school. Then again, if you start awarding failure, that is to say the schools get more money when they do poorly and that it is taken away when they do well, you're creating a system where you're just subsidizing failure. Bob Bowden made an excellent documentary called The Cartel, which further explains what is happening with the public education in America. I have promoted imagination, but not to go to the other extreme where people get rid of all objective reality and objective truth and think that, oh, whatever you feel, that's all that matters. This kind of extreme is just as ridiculous as rejecting imagination entirely. Why do we always have to pick between these two polar extremities? We don't.